Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing Ultimate Wilderness. This is part of our book review series where we review every hardcover book in the Pathfinder RPG. Ultimate Wilderness is the newest book to come out at the time of this recording, and it's all about, guess what, Christian? Nature stuff. My least favorite theme. Really? Yeah, I never really got too excited about naturey things. Like, I actually go outside and, like, go hiking. I always found trying to emulate that in a game, which is never something that I strive to do, because I kind of experience it for the most part already. Uh, Christian, the way you said actually go outside, I find offensive. <laughs> the outside's scary. I don't like it. People are there. But the classes and themes that are present are just ones that are typically, you know, not ones that I personally tend toward. You know, like your druids, mm-hmm. your rangers tracking survival I, I it's always stuff that i always found kind of bookkeepy a little too bookkeepy like oh do you have enough trail rations not that i don't think it's a valid thing it's something that i am not personally super excited for i was excited for it because a lot of times in the wilderness it's kind of a part of my game that i sometimes skip over because people are just traveling through it and i'd be i was i was happy to see if there was some sort of mechanic or something i could fill that time with and do something interesting instead of you guys do anything while you travel through okay three months go by you know i mean ugh. when this book was announced they said hey there's going to be a new class in here it's always real exciting especially since they said it was going to be a shape shifting martial class i'm looking for more classes that don't use magic i love the druid's wild shape but i thought it was a little too complicated i was very excited to see it new races how does that not excite me christian of course it does and then as a player i'm always looking forward to seeing more archetypes be able to see what's going to inspire me to make a new build i mean the books always have things that i'm excited for i mean i do like new archetypes I do like new, just class options. They don't always do archetypes, but a lot of times there's things like new alchemist discoveries, new rage powers, new cleric domains. I will never, you know, miss an opportunity to utilize things like that. And any book that releases new magic items and gear is great to me. Same with feats and things. All right. Well, we pretty much described what's going to be in this book. So why don't we just jump into it? Let's look at the first chapter. Chapter one. Wilderness heroes. There's three races, the Gathlane, the Gorin, two that we've seen in the Bestiary before. They go from a quarter page to six pages with alternate racial traits, favorite class bonuses, gear, magic items, spells, and even archetypes. And we get a new race, the Vine Leshy, inspired from a monster in the Bestiary called the Leshy. Sort of little dudes, little little plant dudes. We actually did episodes on all these guys covering their Bestiary entries and now their Ultimate Wilderness versions. So if you want to know more info about sort of what we think about them, you can go see those episodes. But generally, I liked them. I like the Gorn a lot. Um, I wasn't personally a big fan of the Vine Leshy or the Gathling. But I think that the entries here are good. I don't have a problem with the entries themselves, just not something that I'm personally interested in. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think they all have a lot of great mechanical diversity to them. Yeah, and it, and it helped fit the fantasy of wanting to be a fae or a plant creature, which is, you know, sort of what we wanted to target here. A sort of a new thing that's un- untilled territory to be a player race and be, yo, I'm a plant. And we get a new class, the Shifter, as I was talking about. This is another thing we did a full episode on, so you can go into detail there. But what are your general thoughts on the Shifter there? Well, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse. The Shifter isn't good. Just all point bullet and everyone knows it's it's just not a good class. <laughs> so, something went wrong there. It's not a great fantasy to fulfill. It's not very powerful. It doesn't really shift that much, so it failed right in the namesake. <laughs> it didn't shift enough copies, Christian. <laughs> I agree. I, I, I think you, you've, you've summarized it well enough, and I agree with you. Let's not beat the dead horse. 
That's 20 pages of our about 250 pages in this book. So now we're going to chapter two, archetypes and class options. This makes up mm -hmm. a very big portion of the book, 60 of the pages. There's a lot of new archetypes. There's a lot of new class options. Um, but something this book did is that it also put a lot of reprints into it of things that fit along the same theme. Uh, the, as predicted, the theme in this book is mostly nature theme archetypes and class options, one that mechanically have to do with like the green faith or the fae or nature itself. What this means mechanically is that a lot of these archetypes do what we've seen before, like the new class, the shifter. Uh, there's many archetypes that get the shifter abilities. Read in parentheses, not good. Um, a lot of them get <laughs> druidic abilities, such as wild shape, uh, and ranger abilities, such as pass without trace and tracking and survival based things and wilderness stride, things like that. As you know, all of my favorite abilities, <laughs> none that particularly excite me, but there is a really big list, um, a couple new ones and a couple new ones that really do interest me. Overall, I think this is a really good list of archetypes, a lot of cool new ones, and we're going to go through and highlight our favorite ones. And I'm certainly happy for the reprints. I don't get the smaller books. I mean, I, I may have owned, I think, two in my life, maybe three of those companions. I almost never buy them. I appreciate seeing them in the hardcover. Usually I'll never even know about them if they don't do that. C Caleb, do you know what the internet is? Yeah. Have you heard of that? Yeah, but when I when I use, when I'm going through my book where I'm using Hero Lab, Hero Lab reflects what I've owned. I've only bought things that I've owned. I, I look up an archetype and I don't go, hmm, let me just check, double check the internet to see if there's more and their third party materials are in there, all their freaking 900 player companions and all that crap. Look at Listen, this I own guy. the main books. That's my, that's my library. I don't have, sorry, I can't afford to buy everything Paizo's ever published, Christian. 2018, he's still reading books. <laughs> Get a Kindle, <laughs> Caleb. So we're going to go down alphabetical order, all the classes and some of their options, starting with the Alchemist. Alchemist got two reprints, uh, a couple new discoveries. They're interesting. You can like release pheromones and you can make your bombs gooey and you can make thorns. The new archetype is actually specific for the Vine Leshy. Uh, we mentioned it in the Vine Leshy episode. It's called the Herbalist. Instead of throwing bombs, the Vine Leshy dinks people in the head with seeds. Don't know why, but that's what they do. The ice chemist looks cool. I wish they were actually cool. The oh, that's chem not supposed to be a pun. <laughs> the ice chemist literally just says, gear bombs deal cold damage. Which is weird. I feel like there's probably like a an, an, a discovery you can pick that'll do that anyway, right? And, there's a, and they can actually just pick a discovery that says, your bombs deal fire damage, like normal. So, didn't really get the point of that one. Huh. Well, she looks cool. The anti-paladin got a little bit of love. Uh, if you like kicking pigs, you could do it even harder now, because they get uh, <laughs> Blighted Myrmidon. I think that's the correct way to say that word. Uh, which, long story short, you get smite nature. You really don't like nature. It dies around you. You could smite it kick pigs even harder the barbarian got a little bit of love they got a couple they actually got a lot of new rage powers like a whole page and a half about of new rage powers i always love that stuff because it just bolsters what everyone can pick unlike the archetype which is like if you don't pick it then it's who cares they got three archetypes the brutish swamper uh which is a swamp themed barbarian they like going through swamps and going through gooey underbrush uh, the Cave Dweller, which is actually kind of neat. It's supposed to be a person that lived in a cave, and they can they actually represent their abilities by, like, being able to turn really sharp corners and being able to ambush people at night. That one's actually pretty cool. The one I want to outline from the uh, Barbarian is the 
Pack Hunter. The Pack Hunter is a very simple archetype, which just allows him to get some bonus teamwork feats. It's supposed to be a barbarian that works together with his hunting pack to take people down. The Bard got a handful of new archetypes involving nature. The one that I thought was really cool was called the Cultivator. They have this one very specific performance where as an immediate action, they can basically make underbrush and foliage grow up in front of people, kind of like a plant wall that protects your allies. I thought it was a really neat ability that I haven't seen before. The Brawler got actually uh, about five archetypes. One of them is one that I mentioned before. Um, it's called the Feral Striker. They get a lot of the Shifter's abilities, particularly they get Shifter's Focus, which is the one where you pick animal, you pick wolf or rat or whatever, and you get like a stat bonus or a skill bonus. And it's really interesting because the Brawler actually ends up getting the bonuses earlier, and they're a little bit stronger than the Shifter, which I thought was an interesting choice. Listen, they, they recognize we got to do something. <laughs> like, I think like two levels before Shifter, they get like uh, the dual uh, focuses and the triple focuses and things like that. But it's because that's actually the only part of the Shifter they're getting. All right, Christian, that's all great and all, but I see some art here that looks really cool. This person with super long hair and like snakes on their fists on on their arms and they're wearing like uh i'm just now noticing this it's like a snake skin yoga pants i see now why i'm interested <laughs> oh the woman wearing yoga pants i believe that is the representation of the venom fist archetype actually a really cool archetype i don't know how strong it is but the whole idea is that their fists have like venom on them as per the name and when you punch people you also deal extra bonus poison damage that scales off your constitution modifier I think it's cool. I've been thinking about working with a, a poison build. I think it might get a little like, okay, why well, Fury blows? I'm hitting him nine times. Make nine saves against a poison. Okay. Aside from that, I mean, I'm, it looks really cool and it's a smart. It's an interesting idea. The Cavalier got a really neat archetype. It's called the Green Knight. Uh, you don't get a mount. You dedicate yourself to the Order of the Green, so you're really like Shriva, obviously. And the whole idea is that you're just like this big, tough, unkillable person. And they have this incredibly unique level 20 capstone where like you just can't be killed. And it states that if you were to be decapitated, you still, for a certain amount of time, just act like you are fine. You can still fight. You can still attack. And as long as at some point your head gets reattached to your shoulders with a little bit of healing magic, you're fine. I, it's weird because I actually literally did that with somebody once. I had a, a character that was nature themed. His head was cut off and he just grew new and was like, what? What's wrong? It's very, I get, it's always cool when you see like two different people come up with the same thing completely separate from each other. It's like the same reason, like somebody, you'll hear like nine different origin stories for the Christmas tree. It's like, yeah, it's actually, believe it or not, more than one person had the idea to put a tree in a house. Isn't that interesting? The Cavalier has an archetype as well that involves dinosaurs. You can get a dinosaur mount. Uh, there's a couple archetypes in here that involve dinosaur-related things. I thought you could already get like a dinosaur companion and a dinosaur mount and stuff with like feats and stuff. I'm pretty sure it, like, becomes gigantic at some point. Oh, okay. As expected, the Druid got a lot of love. It has a handful of new archetypes, some reprinted. Uh, and in particular, has two new domains that they can pick. The Erosion Domain and the Vermin Domain. There's one here called the Rot Warden. That, it's sort of interesting to have the Druid that's into the decay part of nature, you know, like mushrooms and that sort of thing. But there's already an archetype that does this. I've played it before, and I think it does it far better than this guy. It's called the Blight Druid. It doesn't mess with vermin like this dude does, but it messes with rot and decay way better. 
Oh, look, he's got, look, I didn't notice this till now. His, his staff is like a big centipede. Clever. Probably hurts with your little, putting your hand on the little, little, the little legs, though. I don't like it. I don't like bugs. Oh, me too. Like, I'm with you. Like, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of bugs, but if they come, like, near me, I'm just like, no. <laughs> just That's don't. That's called I'd being afraid not. of bugs, I'm, But I don't fear it. I don't fear for my safety. I would just prefer them not no to touch me. No one fears for their safety when they see a little pill bug. It's just, ew, gross, it's near me. Irrational fear. <laughs> Like, I'd rather not be cold, but I'm not afraid of the cold. I'm not like, oh, no, it's winter. Look out. It's like, well, I'm going to put a shirt on so I stay warm. Christian, but it's, not it's like, almost I'm like, oh, like no, fear has different different definitions. You should know that. You play Pathfinder. There's like nine different ways to handle fear, and they're all bad. <laughs> Looking at you unchained. Horror adventures. If you really like the Leshy theme, there's an entire Leshy Warden archetype where you're just a druid, and you love Leshies, and you summon Leshies, and Leshies are the best. And now they're other player characters, so it's kind of weird, because you're summoning their friends. <laughs> the fighter got some love, and every fighter archetype that is released is a buff to the class that is fighter, that is hailed as the worst class, except for Shifter now. The one I really <laughs> want to talk about <laughs> is possibly my favorite archetype of all time at the moment. It's just called the Skirmisher. It's a very, very simple archetype. All it is is a fighter that doesn't wear heavy armor. They instead wear light armor, and they're about simply being more maneuverable. They're more dodgy. They move very fast. They get bonus skill points. They get four skill points per level because just getting two is stupid. Oh, thank goodness. And they get a a lot of things that are like training. Uh, You get like jungle training, which confers certain benefits. It's just what I always want to play when I'm a fighter. I prefer being the dexterous, fast person. So this archetype really spoke to me. They get another archetype, the Viking archetype, which allows them to get rage powers, which I thought was really cool. You could do that beforehand through like variant multi-class, but this is just straight up an archetype that gives you some rage powers, which I thought was neat. All right, Christian, but guess what? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Time to move to the hunter and guess what I get? I get plant companions, the plant master archetype. The picture here is great. He's like holding a little piece of meat over this plant that's like walking on vines with a big like bulbous mouth. Like in Jumanji, it's ready to eat people. He's like, oh, who's a good, who's a good plant? I'm going to drop it. I love it. Christian, I love it. Mechanics are cool too. But the picture, Christian. <laughs> no, the mechanics is pretty interesting. You get to, I've done a plant companion before Hunter. When we did our, our example built, when we covered it, I made one who used the assassin vine. It's interesting here that they, they do more things with it. So instead of giving the animal aspects, you're now giving people, you're giving yourself or your animal companion plant aspects. The hunter got a plant-based archetype in the wilderness book. I would have never guessed. <laughs> what a plot twist. Just because something meets your expectations doesn't mean it's bad. I think I would do a lot better in my life if I met people's expectations <laughs> instead of usually just trotting them underfoot. Oh, Caleb, I thought you would do better. Well, then you should. I thought you've met me before. <laughs> Another archetype that the hunter got that I really want to highlight is called the forester. It is an archetype that you lose your animal companion as a hunter and instead get a lot of self-buffs. You become much more self-sufficient than being reliant on your animal companion, which I always like archetypes that like that kind of fundamentally change the idea of the class while still using the same mechanics. And I think that's something we talked about, how, like, if I'll just lose my animal companion, then I'll have the buff all the time. I'm glad they saw that and said, all right, let's make it part of the deal. <laughs> yeah, I think, like, the first thing people theorycrafted when the hunter came out was, well, if I get a leech animal companion and then strangle it to death, I get fast healing forever. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you play RPGs, right? 
<laughs> Strangle your pets. The investigator got some new archetypes. The investigator is one of my, if not my very favorite class. If you like a lot of the extra mechanics that are going to be introduced in the book that we'll talk about later, such as the herbalism mechanic, the natural philosopher investigator archetype is skewed toward nature. They get bonuses to the heal and survival skills, and they just use the herbalism mechanic as built into the class, which kind of goes along with their extracts and making alchemy. A really neat one they got is called the Star Watcher, and you read people's horoscopes, essentially. Instead of getting extracts, you straight up get horoscopes from reading the stars, and you can read horoscopes to people to convey buff spells to them instead of giving them extracts to drink. Let's talk about a class I really, really like, and that's the Kineticist. They get a brand new element, wood. That's an element now. Congratulations. And they get, of course, when you add a new element, a, just a suite of new wild talents, which is cool. It's, it's interesting. It's always good to have new options. I've seen the other kineticist archetypes that have come out in the other books, like horror adventures and stuff. They weren't actually like, I didn't feel like I could play them. I felt like they were either sort of NPC or they were just so strange and kind of off the beaten path. I just, okay, I'm not going to harvest souls and use them to fuel my thing. It wasn't as, as interesting. This is base level. It's a new element and it's what you expect with a new element. Did you talk about edgy archetypes that you steal people's souls because that's what the blighted defiler does which is another kineticist archetype they got i thought it was cool it's definitely edgy and definitely more suited toward like a bbeg or like just evil person against the party but the whole idea is that you steal power from the land and you blight that landscape drawing power from it uh one of the cool mechanical things it does though is that basically strength ends up replacing your constitution for a lot of your abilities I'm not as familiar with the kineticist. I can't speak on whether or not that works correctly or is powerful, but I thought it was really cool. It's strange because uh, long as like your burn's still calculated by your con score, or even if it's not, even if it's using your strength, you're still taking damage to your health. So you're still going to want a con score. So it's sort of adding a new score that you need to pump up high. Unless, unless there's something there that says you get hit points based off of your strength modifier. I don't think so. But now it's a, instead of having one attribute, it basically has two attributes now. Arguably three, since you kind of need dexterity. Yeah, I was going to say, dex is a big one. Oh no, they're like a fighter now. They need all three physical stats. Someone help. Yeah, I want to talk about two of the archetypes for the ranger. The flame warden and the storm walker. The flame warden uh, is just like, hey, my bows, now the arrows are on fire. <laughs> oh, I do flame stuff. I actually like I like the theme of I've always liked the idea of you can sort of change out your your weapons enchantments and stuff and it's a cool idea that like I'm a fire dude you know what my bows my knives they do fire stuff now and oh what's this when I get high enough level when I die I'm like a phoenix I explode in fire burning my enemies and healing my allies get over it I'm a fire dude now and I walk on fire. I've always been a fan of the, the fire element, as I'm sure anyone who's listening to Trailblazers has figured out. And the Stormwalker is sort of the same thing, but he does more of the electricity stuff. He's wreathed, he can wreath his weapon in lightning. He can literally teleport himself via lightning bolts. That's um amazing. Another thing I've done with an NPC before. And of course, control weather, which is super cool to do. And when he gets really high level, he can like attack. Boom, I lightning across the battlefield and I'm attacking again. Get over it. This is a cool idea, riding lightning. The rogue got a new archetype called the Sylvan Trickster. A lot of people have talked about this one. It's really neat. Uh, the idea is that you basically give up some of your rogue talents to get witch hexes. You just pick from the list of witch hexes, like the slumber hex and the cackle hex. Really interesting idea. I don't know if this is a writing error or if how it should actually work, but technically the Sylvan Trickster doesn't say at any point that the rogue level counts as witch levels for their hex scaling, so their, their hex is technically... Reading as written, don't scale. But still, either way, a very cool idea. 
The uh, Desert Raider archetype has a cool little thing here called Sun at Your Back, and it allows you to, to gain concealment in the middle of open wilderness if the sun is shining, which is really cool. I like the idea of you're in the desert. You know how the heat does that weird thing where like things wave and stuff? It, that's, a, that's a really unique way to, to flavor that. It's something else that I feel like they just kind of gave people because they're tired of them doing it. There's a feat called Hellcat Stealth where you can hide in plain sight as long as it's bright light. Um, so this guy just took that and made it an archetype and said, save your feet, you, you can just do it now. <laughs> Scald got a kind of hilarious archetype called Hunt Caller. Uh, the only thing I remember that does is that <laughs> when you activate Raging Song, all of your allies, instead of Raging, can choose to be affected by Beast Shape 1. So you and your posse can just turn to like a bunch of wolves or rats or something and just wail on somebody <laughs> while they're very confused <laughs> as to what just happened. Summoner gets a new uh, subtype for the Eidolon, the plant subtype. Great. I may have more fantasies. I want to have all my giant beast you to be a plant. Now it is. Long overdue, in my opinion. It's weird. They don't like buffing the summoner. It's kind of, I don't know why they don't do that. It's weird, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know what? I haven't seen in a while a good arcanist archetype. You're it's right. It's so amazing it is. As it I, is. I think it's because they're so very based on their exploits. Like, they don't really have a lot of class abilities. It's mostly just their exploits that they pick. Give us new exploits. Come on. Yeah, where are they at? They're not in this book, tell you that much. The last archetype I want to mention is the Arrow Champion archetype for the Swashbuckler. If you listen to Trailblazer Season 2, um, I played... There is a Ranger archetype that basically is half Swashbuckler. Then that's what I played and I really enjoyed it. Now there's a Swashbuckler archetype that's half Ranger. So now you can take <laughs> your pick of both. Like we said, there's 60 pages of archetypes here. There's for almost every class. I even had to say, Christian, we can't mention all of these that you found interesting because it would just take up too much time. There's a lot of archetypes here. Kind of surprised me how many there were. And uh, I'm glad that they're there. I'm glad that they put that much time in them. Well, they're not just there. They're also in the, the, the race pages. And they're also later <laughs> in the religious description pages. So where it says archetypes, it says it should say most archetypes, but not yeah, all archetypes. We, uh, yeah, one last mention is we, we covered every single shifter archetype in this book in our extra credit on our shifter episode. So if you want to hear about them, we got them covered in detail there. Let's move on to the next chapter, though, Christian. Feats. We got 20 pages worth of feats here. 110 new feats. One item creation, two meta magic, four style, and five teamwork. We've got uh, combat feats. We've got wilderness feats. And we've got wild shape feats. That's sort of the categories these are going to fit in. I know those aren't technical categories. I know combat is, but the other So two come aren't. on down to the forest. We got all the feats you need. <laughs> Wacky waving inflatable vine tube, man. <laughs> I wanted to talk about a couple that I found interesting. There's aquatic combatant, which pretty much goes, fine, you can fight underwater. Let's get rid of all the dumb rules. All right, good. I'm glad there's a feat for that. <laughs> An aquatic spell as a metamagic feat, which lets you cast spells underwater. So now underwater campaigns a little bit easier. Yeah, if you're running an underwater campaign, or at least a very heavily water-themed campaign, you can just kind of give these to your players for free. So say, you know, play any class, but, you know, take you get these feats for free. Or so you play any race. You don't need to be like a merfolk or something. Spring Attack is one of my favorite feats, uh, but it has never gotten much love. They actually put two new feats in the Spring Attack chain. Now there is Improved Spring Attack and Greater Spring Attack, which allow you basically to make iterative attacks as long as you're running past more people. Makes it a little bit more viable. Just a little, though. There's Clinging Climber. This is to help fix the, can I do this question that your players will ask. All right, I'm in a tree. I want to hang with my feet and still keep attacking with my bow. Can I do this? Um, Make an acrobatics check, I guess? 
Let me make up a random number for you to have to beat. Well, now you got the feet that says, here you go. You got the feet that lets you use your feet. <laughs> Get codified. <laughs> now you can't do this without this feat. There's a couple feats like that in this book that mm-hmm. I don't like where it's like, I thought I could just do that. I didn't know I needed to pick a feat that said I could do that. Yeah, a lot of these feats I wish were just things you could do with some of these skills by default. For example, Animal Call allows you to make convincing animal sounds of bluff checks. I kind of wish that was just a thing you could do with bluff checks. Or Animal Disguise, where you can disguise yourself as an animal using pelts and animal parts. I felt like that's what the disguise skill is for, me to disguise. There's a couple of those kind of disappointing. And like you said, now it's like, oh, I guess you can't do these things now because there's feats that specifically call out that you need them. One of the style feats was really cool. It's called the Beastmaster style. It's all about fighting alongside an animal companion. If your animal companion gets hurt, you get like retribution bonuses against the person that attacked your animal companion. And they're actually very substantial. At the highest level, if something hurts your animal companion, you get a plus two on attack rolls and a plus four on damage rolls against that target, which is absolutely insane. It's incredibly powerful. And immediately made me want to try to make a build involving like giving my animal companion bodyguard so he could take hits for me, and then me getting angry and like, hey, you hit my dog, and just beating the heck out of someone. There's Edelon Mount, where you can use your Edelon as a mount. Again, another one of those things I wish I could just do. Can't, okay, can't just do that. There's a feat chain called the Totemic Chain. Uh, it allows you to get totem rage powers, as long as you're not a barbarian that already has rage powers, which I always love things that give class abilities to people not of that class. You could argue that it kind of homogenizes classes, but I just like having those options. There's Wolf Rider. You can select a wolf as your mount. Uh, I thought that was something I could already do. Oh, I guess not. Nope. Do you have the feet, Caleb? (laughs) (laughs) I guess now I need it. I I had a ranger that had a wolf animal companion. I let her use it as a mount. I didn't know I was doing something wrong. Yeah, I actually don't see any reason why you can't. If it is a trained animal and it is of the proper size, it could serve as your mount. You don't need a feet. I mean, is there a feat that says I can ride a horse's amount? (laughs) Do I need one of those? Like, okay. Flinging charge was a really cool new feat. I always like new options for martial characters. The idea is that basically when you make a charge attack, before you actually run, you throw a throwing weapon at someone, and then at the end of your charge, you hit them with a melee attack. So you're actually getting two attacks in one charge action, kind of like a pseudo-pounce. There's Wild Growth Channel. Your channel energy now makes vines grow on the ground that you can control and grab people with. Oh, you ain't moving. You're staying right here so I can use my attack and use my harm channel energy on you next turn. It's a good one, like sort of I'm connected with a god. Maybe I'm connected with a nature god. And look at this. Bam. There's usually a chain of feats in these books that like kind of just like go along the theme. Like if you're not this kind of character theme already, well, you can kind of adopt traits of this character theme through a feat chain. And this time it's the wilding chain, which I'm super not a fan of because it's kind of weak. Requires you to have some wisdom, requires you to be neutral, and the first one gives you wild empathy, my favorite ability. But just for a feat, you can have wild empathy. A lot of people do like that ability, the ability to basically talk to animals and, you know, get them to not attack you. And you're also treated as an animal for purpose of spells that target you. And then there's a lot of feats that break off of that and give you more of the abilities like wild empathy. There's one with the land. You can eat and drink half as much, heal naturally faster, and protected from environmental effects in your favored terrain. I like this as sort of like the the poor man's uh, ring of sustenance sort of thing. But like you said, you just want to fit in with that theme. I'm a ranger. This is my favorite terrain. I should be able to get along in it better. Speaking of things here for the ranger, there's improve hunter's bond, which means you grant your allies full favored enemy bonus if you've picked them to be your bond. 
That's great. That's awesome. You've just doubled the effectiveness of one of your class abilities. Yeah, giving everyone in your party full favorite enemy basically says that person does not get to play the game. <laughs> they are not a viable enemy at the moment. <laughs> and that's the feats chapter. Overall, I'm not super happy with it for the problems I already talked about, but there are a few that are pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of just, I'm picking out the nuggets here, but the ones that are here that I like, I really like. I really like the totemic chain. I really like spring attack. So I'm glad that these at least got expanded somewhere. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just playing some role-playing games while listening to the speech made by some GM named Martin Luther King. I'm not quite clear how any of this relates to RPGs, though. Well, Caleb, I'm not sure when he says character, he's talking about the kind of character that you're thinking of. Hey, but do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can find Trailblazers on iTunes. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice and join us. Alright Christian, I think I get it now. He's saying we're supposed to judge our fellow players by the content of their character sheet, not the color of their orc or elvish skin. Oh, Caleb, I'm not sure that you'll ever understand. Let's talk about the second biggest chapter in the book. Chapter 4, Mastering the Wild. This is about 50 pages, broken up in different sections. This is what I thought like most of the book was going to be when I bought it. This is the stuff that has to do with the wild, with wilderness, with nature. The sort of mechanics and ideas behind it. The first part of Mastering the Wild is actually something Caleb uh, wanted to see in this book, and it's rules for codifying exploring the wilderness. So instead of just saying, hey, you guys are walking through the woods, I guess you go find that place I want you to find because I'm the GM, and I say when happens and what happens. Uh-huh. I don't see it's, a problem it, with that. Go on. <laughs> it's a comprehensive set of rules that I, I personally really like. It's for exploring areas. So the idea is that you have a territory, and it's so the territory is like the Mystic Woods, and the Mystic Wood has some like stats associated with it, some survival DCs. It has some locations in it. So instead of just you know your your players show up to the Mystic Woods and they're like ah roll survival check ah whatever you find it. Uh, there's a small point system where it's like when they're making survival checks, they're accruing something called discovery points. Once they reach a certain uh, certain threshold of discovery points, they have the ability to discover new locations in that territory. And then there's things that can lead them to those locations, such as way signs, which are artifacts or signs left behind to discover this place, or just finding an already mapped out version of this place. It's it's it sounds like a strange set of rules, but I ended up I'm definitely going to try this. I think it is very concise. I think it's very neat. I think it was very well done. Maybe I'm just thick, but I had a lot of trouble trying to wrap my mind around it. When you finally did understand it, do you think that you can easily and concisely implement it or explain it to your players? 100%. 
Because really all okay. the players are doing are saying, I'm going out. They, they have like options. They're either going out exploring or they're documenting what they've already seen or they're trying to uncover new uh, locations. Those are like the three things they're doing. So they're doing exactly what they were doing before, just as the DM, instead of you just arbitrarily deciding what they come across now they actually have a goal to work for. It doesn't just feel like the GM handed it them. It said, we worked for that. We accrued the points. You know, we got to find the location. Said the GM saying, the story thing's over here. Well, you guys made it over here. Is it possible to say something's too gamified in a TTRPG? Because I feel a little bit like, like you were saying at the beginning of the episode, I, you know, I go outside, I enjoy the wild. I grew up in upstate New York. Like getting to the nearest general store was a nice hour trip. You know what I'm saying? I had a, a river right down the street from me. Road lights were not a thing, which by the way, you don't realize how awesome road lights are until you don't have them. Night sucks. I didn't have a curfew at night. My parents just said when you when it, when the sundown come in the house, and I never argued because that's when you would hear the coyotes start howling. So you know what? I'm going to be home. I'm here. I'm home now in the safety of my house, bringing my garbage out to the the end of the driveway. You know, Tuesday nights terrified me because it was dark. I was going to get hit by a bobcat. (laughs) I enjoy nature. And I was just looking at this. I'm like, this makes it like there is none of the wonder of exploring nature in the system. And I even sort of the role playing of let's go out here and let's have let's uh, I want to go out in the woods. I'm doing this. I feel like if I'm just picking, okay, I'm going to do this one of the three options. Do you, are you confident that you can sort of, you know, not skin this, but sort of your players, when they say things like, I go out and do this, they don't have to just say one of the three options and you can implement the system sort of naturally? Oh, 100%. And this this okay. overall, I think it was like the actual like breakdown of the rules was only like two pages. I, I didn't want this to be verbose and it definitely isn't. I think it's very, very sleek the way it works. Well, then I guess I just am thick. It's only two pages <laughs> isn't verbose. I get it, Christian. I see what you're saying. <laughs> Like, I, I think it is possible to say that it's too gamified, but I think this is just, like, the perfect rules light breakdown for introducing, exploring an area into the game that doesn't just feel like the GM just decided you go there. Okay. Cool. You're the P- you're the PCs, therefore you got to the place. Right. It's, it's, it's always good, like you said, when the players have earned something. The next chapter is on the first world. Kind of sort of have the shadow plane lies between the material and negative energy plane. The first world lies between the material and positive energy plane. It was like the template for the material plane. And like the gods were like, all right, first we're going to do this. Or whoever made the world. I don't know what the lore is for Galarian. They're like, all right, we'll try this. No, 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 that didn't work out. This one, I like this one. Okay, deer are cool. The fanged deer that were 500 feet tall. Let's let's abandon those. Let's not bring those over to the material world. But when they finally made the material world, they left all of like the templates and stuff behind. Once the material plane was finished. So there's your first world. So other than just the lore, there's a few rules for like hazards in the first world or hazards involving the first world. So there's stuff like pollens. Uh, There's rules for what are called echoes, which uh, show up in the material plane and they're like tears between the two planes. And because the rules of like laws of nature and physics weren't fully hashed out in the first world it like starts to leak into the real world and things start to get real freaky around the tear uh the echoes and things start mechanically to get... that works like haunts yes right? they mechanically they're basically haunts but instead of being damaged by positive energy they're damaged by uh negative energy hmm. i like what is here in this i like the idea of the first world i like the hazards they have here but it's really light there's only three hazards and three echoes statted out here. Hmm. I like some of the decisions they made here. It's not just like uber nature. We have deer, but they're bigger. Like it, it has have that. Mountains are taller, oceans are deeper. But it's a place of inconsistent natural laws. That that was a good decision to make. 
not not many people who would have made the nature place would have made it where it ignores sort of like natural laws, but I think it works out really well. And they add this like little smart smart little note that says, here's a simple rule if you want to represent something in first world. Give it the fate template. That's it. Pathfinder needs more simple rules. A list of creatures often found in the first world is great. And then the simple rule of just add this one template. Bam, simple, quick, I love it. Also a little bit of lore here, undead are incredibly rare in the first world, but those that do exist tend to be powerful and unique. I'm already thinking of stories to take place there with that one sentence. They did a good job at least using the words that they had, the, the, the amount of space that they had. I'm not a person who uses a lot of the Galarian lore. I'll use the big things like, okay, there's a material plane and there's a shadow plane and then there's a first world plane. Okay, I'll use that, but I'm going to decide what those even look like. I might use a little bit of this here in my homebrew. The the brevity of the rules they incorporate for representing the first world is what I like the most about this chapter. I liked it with the discovery and exploration. I like it with like what you just said, the idea of the natural laws and just, you know, just add a template. It already exists. You know what it does. Use it. After that is foraging and salvaging, two new uh, small sets of rules for going into the woods and getting goods and fashioning them to useful things, which is foraging, and salvaging, which is taking what you have that's broken and salvaging useful bits from it to make new things. The foraging goes with what I said before. It's a very streamlined set of DCs to point to that if someone wants to go grab goods from the woods... They can do it. You can point to the table and say, well, yeah, you can find a quarterstaff. You can do this. Um, you don't have to just make stuff up. Salvaging, however, personally, I would stay away from unless you're running like a super deprived, no gold poor simulator. I don't want to read rules on how many spent arrows I can mash together <laughs> to make a new arrow and how I can take my oh, my leather vest and rip it apart and I've made two moccasins. It was way too rules heavy. And it's just something that I feel like if I really wanted this element, I would just give them more money to buy more things. <laughs> Forging seems okay, but as I was reading it, I saw things that I usually just say, you find it or you don't. I don't need to know, like you were talking about, I don't need a, I need to, <laughs> I don't need to know a rule that says you can forge this many quarter staffs in 1d4 hours. Uh, you, you find it or you don't, okay? Freaking it's a quarter staff. I'm not going to put my style of GMing on everyone else, though. So take that with a grain of salt. Some people will like that sort of number crunchy things. Yeah, what if they want to start a quarterstaff shop? And that, your player's just like super about there. Like, what? I could get stuff What if we turn the quarterstaffs into ladders and those into oh two five-foot poles? <laughs> See, now it's not infinite money. They are bottlenecked by the number of 1d4 <laughs> hours it takes for the fine quarterstaffs. I think char like the last chapter we said, like, in its, its brevity was where it shined. I think charts instead of text would have gone a long way into streamlining this part of the chapter. I don't craft a lot, so I'll have to defer to you, but it does seem cool to me that you can change a potion into another one by salvaging it, or that you could salvage costly spell components from other ones, but it doesn't really explain it very well. Can I make my four GP magic item into diamond dust? Is it a one-for-one -one ratio? I just don't know because it doesn't tell me. It just says you can do it. Okay, thanks, but how? Look at this guy reading books and using spell components in 2018. <laughs> you even, you have a house rule for greater issue materials, if I recall correctly. Uh, you do recall correctly, but I've sort of changed it to something that I don't know why I didn't do this in the first place because it makes so much more sense. So, you know, they balance some of the more powerful spells by making it cost you need a thousand gold of diamond dust. Oh, great. Well, I guess I'm not going to cast Augury every round like my last player did when I didn't make them do that i didn't realize that mistake so my new rule is you just spend the money as you cast it 
and we just we just sort of pretend that you had bought the materials earlier. Just sort of the idea where like you don't have to explain to me every time you went to the bathroom. We kind of just assume you went to the bathroom when you needed to. We can just assume <laughs> you bought the stuff. That way they're still spending the money, but we don't have to worry about role playing going and buying diamond dust. But anyway, the next chapter, Christian, the Green Faith. Tell me about it now. Right now, uh, the Green Faith. It's um woods, the trees, Quicker, faster. Oh, you got trees and they got leaves. Wait, green. Slower? And the photo says it's half speed. And then the vines grow up, and you worship. It's like cool. You <laughs> like that? It's balanced. The Green Faith is tenets of the said religious sect, the Green Faith, its hierarchies and the beliefs and roles of those who follow it. The Green Faith is obviously a very nature-themed religion about, you know, I like nature. I like nature. That's all you like. That's it. (laughs) That's all you are. Um, So there's not just like this hierarchy, but there's also a list of like their holy sites and a breakdown of the different paths within this religion, because as we know, religions aren't just one thing. They're usually like this fractured, multi-branching path. It's a true neutral religion. It's centered around admiration for the natural world. So it's a very, very old religion. I'm wondering if it's Native American themed. It literally states that they don't personify nature in anthropomorphic ways. So they're not they're not talking about Mother Ocean or something like that which I think Native Americans did, but I just don't know enough about it to say. But I do like the ideas that there's like the solstice, the equinox, planetary alignments. These are these are all celebrations, and they're cool ideas for holidays I'd like to sort of put in my campaign. I always need more of those. When I do implement holidays and different celebrations, I always get a positive reaction from my players. These are good reasons to have those holidays. And there's different orders, like the order of the wave, the wing, the flame, the leaf, those sort of things. The next chapter is about harvesting poisons. The rules are simple, but they cover multiple facets. So sort of what we talked about before, how things were sort of streamlined. They streamlined it, but where it needs to get complicated, they added the like one or two sentences that make sense. So let me give you an example. They give rules for anti-venom. It's half price of normal venom, but is five times less likely to be found at a store than the poison is. That's simple. That makes sense. That's a great way to explain that and still feel kind of realistic. They also introduce a bunch of new poisons. And I kind of now, with all this new poison information, I want to make a poisoner build. I think it might be my next build. It's a lot of new poisons. There's actually a couple good ones. Personally, for me, the problem with poisons has always been, like, they didn't want to make them too good because they'd be really ubiquitous because anyone can just slap poison on their weapon and get a big buff. Uh, But there's a couple of pretty strong, high DC poisons you can make here that aren't too difficult to get. Particularly, uh, Jackal Root Essence is an injury-based poison with a DC 18 fortitude save, and if the target fails, they're affected with uncontrollable laughter. Which, like I said, it acts as hideous laugh. I always say that giving spellcasting abilities to non-spellcasters is a really big boon, and something the game needs more of. Definitely. Next part of the chapter is Hazards and Disasters. There's some cool stuff to sort of flesh out your encounter map, and a good number of them. Plane maps are boring, and if you don't spice them up either with interesting terrain, interesting creatures, interesting mechanics for a combat encounter, this is a great way to mess around with the terrain. For example, there's vampire orchids. This is the stuff from Wizard of Oz. It's going to put you to sleep if you're walking through it. Oh, did you did you walk through it and shake the pedals when now there's dust in the air, make a save, you're going to fall asleep. That might not be so great in the middle of a battle, would it? No, probably not. However, it doesn't really seem interesting outside of an encounter map. Okay, you fell asleep for an hour. You wake up. Okay. All right. Or like, for example, they have forging river rules. It wouldn't, it's really not interesting. It's sort of like as a really bad reason to to take up your set, your valuable session time for these foraging rules. But if you have a river in the middle of your encounter map, the, the time it takes isn't that long. You can just follow the rules and it's like, okay, if you want to get the better terrain over here or whatever reason to cross this river you have in your map, 
Now you've got rules for that. Over here is a little cluster of the vampire orchids. They're just, I think, really good for combat, but would be lame outside of combat. Unless you're doing an Oregon Trail campaign, in which case this is necessary. Ah, oh, but the dysentery rules aren't explained. <laughs> I find it strange that they give the environmental hazards a CR, as if I would calculate them like, oh, there's three orcs at one-third CR, <laughs> and there's some thin ice adding one to the CR. I find that strange. Because they can just walk around environmental hazards for the most part. Maybe it's to help you with traps, sort of gauging how powerful it will be. Well, I think an earthquake is going to be a lot stronger than reflective snow. So. <laughs> Volcano. CR varies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how much? How much? The next chapter is herbalism. This is rules for using profession herbalism to gather and use herbs. List of herbs that are useful to a variety of classes. And if it's not useful for your class, chances are you'll probably find it useful for one of your allies. This system is going to live or die on the herbs, so they did a very smart decision, and they added a lot of the herbs. Three and a half pages worth. Most of it is explaining here are the herbs. Very smart decision. This could do with an expansion, but without it, it's enough to make it work. To me, this is the brilliant direction and maybe the best example of the direction to take rules regarding professions. I'm glad they're going a route where each one can have its own mechanics, making it worth taking them. Herbalism, here's all the mechanics for herbalism. Here's the plants you can pick. Here's the benefits of it. Great. I'm actually feeling like I'm not wasting my points when I put something in profession herbalism. I want to see this done with the rest of the professions. I mean, who hasn't heard the player go, I'm, I'm a bard. I want to perform on our downtime. How much money do I earn? And those sort of mechanics for that are very lame and, and simple. I would love to see that sort of profession as well treated that way. How much more interesting would that be if it had sort of these more interesting rules and things you could do with it? I really hope each profession gets this treatment is stellar. The DCs are a little high, which I think they should be because you don't want to be able to just like pull this out whenever you want. But a lot of the herbs are really cool. There's stuff like dream lichen, which, you know, when you're exposed to it, you have pleasant dreams. There's ones that let you breathe underwater. You were talking about you want stuff that sort of acts like spells. There's one right there. A lot of them will give you like saving throw bonuses against the hazards that are present in that terrain. There's, I think they did do a really good job on this. It's a lot to go through because you kind of have to familiarize yourself with all of it, but thankfully it's broken down by terrain. Like this says, well, it only grows in mountains, so you know whether or not your players are in an area that they can find that. There's one that'll let you be the bad guys from Doctor Strange. It's called Seeing Slime. You put it on your eyes and it gives you dark vision. But what it does is it, it gives you rashes. And if you keep using it, uh, you get permanent purple blotches on the skin around the user's eyes. Great. I like the idea. I have a little bit of drawback, a little something. Always have a little bit of flavor. What I wish this came with, though, was a table. Because at the moment, if one of my players is in say, a forest, I have to look through each of the descriptions of each herb to find out whether or not it's available in a forest. There's no table that tells me, well, here's what's in a forest. Here's what's in a moist swamp environment. It's just the the herb's description itself that has their terrain. Hmm. You get like those little symbols they put next to monsters in the bestiary. Yeah, that would help a lot. There isn't so many, though, so I feel like you're going to want to be able to find most of these in most places. The next chapter is Spells of the Wild. It's a list of spells that are wilderness-themed by level ranges, you know, like level 1 through 6, level 7 through 12, and schools. 
At first, I felt like this was a stupid chapter, but then I thought about what I have voiced as one of my biggest complaints about Pathfinder, that there is little available to help you sift through the hundreds, sometimes quite literally thousands of options of things available, hundreds and thousands of feats, spells, and gear, magic items, and I've always said, like, if we just had a list of things that broke them down into categories we could understand, it would help us pick them and, and sift through this vast amount of information. So a list of what spells are nature-themed, while not exactly what I meant, is welcomed. And I think it's really smart that they broke it down to low-level play, mid-level play, and high-level play. So if you're an uh, up-and-coming ranger, you never played the class before, you can sit down and read this chapter and be like, well, what spells are relevant to a nature-themed person that I could pick, rather than going on the SRD and saying, well, there's 8,000 options. I'm going to look for the one with the coolest name and pick that. Right. Boy, how many times? I think this is something every GM can identify with, where your player goes, I used this ability. Okay, it's not going to help you. You just picked it because it said grasping vines, didn't you? Yeah. You thought it was going to grasp players, didn't you? Yeah. You didn't read that it only grasps walls and allows you to climb, did you? No. <laughs> Happens all the time. And I don't blame them. Like you said, with freaking thousands, what are you going to do? This one sounds cool. I'll pick this one. The next part is called Trophies and Treasures. I have been doing this for years. I killed the dragon, so I'm going to cut out his eyes, grab his teeth, maybe some claws. Can I skin the hide? I'm d there's definitely going to be uses for a dragon. You don't kill a dragon every day. And then you just find out, well, there's really no rules for it. The best you can do is use that hide and get a discount on hide armor. Okay. I'm so, I was so excited to see here finally rules to take trophies and treasures off of monsters, but unfortunately it's a bit disappointing. There's either rules to just sell these parts or to make it into a trophy. I'm happy to have the ski lodge where I can mount up the head of the basilisk I killed, but I'd like to do more things and either sell it for money or do that. There's a picture here of uh, somebody taking the eye of a basilisk, which is one of the things I made a crucial part of an adventure. I'm like, go get this eye. I guess that's a common thing people want to have. The one part I do like about it is I think it's neat that you can use the parts for item creation. For example, if you get a part from a giant, you can use that as the spell component part for magic items that have a large person as a, as a requirement. And there's Ooh. other ones like that that are very smart. If you kill a dragon, you can use the organs from the dragon to make components that ask for energy damage of that dragon's type. I like that, but this kind of harks back to what you were saying. Is it possible for something to be too gamified? I feel like this is definitely telling the line. Or like there's even a little table that says like, well, whatever CR creature it was, this is how much gold you get from harvesting it. Sure. But I feel like there's, there's some monsters that are like, well, yeah, it's a low CR, but this thing's got gold in its body it's part gold wouldn't that be a little bit more valuable which of mm -hmm. course you'd have to make corner case exceptions for but then it raises the question how often are you going to have to do that yeah is, is this something that like me as a gm i wasn't like struggling to do this i said yeah you guys can harvest whatever you want off it and i'll decide how much it costs i don't think i really had a problem with that before i'm just saying i don't feel like i needed these rules and i probably won't use them except maybe for the the spell component one i really like that i think it's it's a, can you imagine it's like i gotta make this necromantic item i have the heart of a lich i think i can just use this <laughs> yeah I, it's cool though it's good for the magic user it's good for just making money it'd be cool if it was good for the martial user or for you know just generic general use but hey there's rules for how much it'll weigh glad that was there the next part of this chapter is about weather it is a bit bookkeepy 
you have to like determine the climate, then the elevation. What season is it? Keep track of what the degrees are in this part. But it has a neat sort of encounter table design. You know, like those tables that are like, you know, roll a D100. If you get a zero, you get ambushed by thieves. If you get a 60 to 70, you come across an ancient temple, that sort of thing. Those tables are great for sort of open world campaigns, which I think a wilderness adventure might be. Uh, so it's kind of sort of harking into that. But unlike encounter tables and loot tables, you can't just roll and know immediately what's going on. I'm just rolling a 12. That says you're 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 going to be kidnapped in the night. That's what's happening. You have to make decisions first to know what tables to roll on. Then you have to look up the results to understand them. And you're essentially crafting your own table out of the table. You pick out the climate, and then you need to pick the elevation that fits that climate. Then you need to make your season baseline decisions. Then you roll in the region temperature table. Then you determine the chance of precipitation. Then you roll for the time of day, which doesn't have a table, which is going to affect the chance that you're going to have that precipitation. Then you roll in the precision, precipitation table. That wasn't me making that up, by the way. I wasn't throwing out garbage. That's what you do. It's Ooh. a tad bit too complicated. I would love if it was streamlined like much of Pathfinder needs to be. I might use it for my open world campaign of season three of Trailblazers, but I'm probably going to simplify it a little bit so I don't have to spend so much time in game figuring out the result or roll everything early, which is going to suck for open world where you're not always sure what your players are going to do or where they're going to go. I'm going to have to modify a little bit, but the base is there and there's a lot of cool things there that you can pick out from the complications. If it is, if something is going to be complicated, chances are you're going to find things that are cool. There's a neat little snippet there about the Darklands, or I think DD call it the Underdark, that allows like skinning, like instead of the fog, you're going to skin it as spore clouds. Uh, the precipitation isn't going to be rain. It's going to be a constantly leaking ceiling. I'm glad they had a little bit there to say, hey, you're not always going to be taking place outside in a forest. Now, mechanically, do the weather effects do much? Like, is it something else you have to bookkeep? Like, if there's fog, you can only see so far. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, for example, if you have light snow with the sun gleaming off of the you know snow, you're going to lose visibility. You're going to minus two on perception checks. Light snow has a 75% chance each hour of extinguishing unprotected flames. A bunch of very bookkeepy things that if you read ahead of time are cool and interesting things to sort of flavor. When I have my players go through a blizzard, I pretty much only concentrated on its cold. I wish I had this sort of thing here to say, oh, look at all these other things can happen. Your light, your torch goes out because of the wind. Oh, you can't, you know, uh, I'm looking for a shelter. It's hard. You can barely see in front of your face. Little do they know 10 feet away is like a, a lean-to. They have that for each of the results. Are there like example weather results or is it just the tables? It's just the tables. Huh. Yeah, weather's kind of always been a moot point for me. I use it, but if you like, if you're in light fog and you can only see so far, well, guess what? Everyone else also is in the fog mm -hmm. nearby and they also can only see so far. So it's kind of a sum zero transaction. So unless someone has some means of overcoming the weather, everyone's subject to the same thing. So I never really found the point to making mechanical implications for this. <laughs> it's good for encounter stuff. Like for the lightning storm, there's a chance that lightning's going to hit the ground and hit you. And, th and those negative to like your range attack because of the power of the wind is obviously good for the encounters. Definitely in a sort of open world campaign that I'm planning to do, I, I don't see how weather can't be a big part of it. I'm glad I have some more stuff here to determine it. Because we have in the core rulebook is some explanation. And I think in Ultimate Campaign, maybe, there's some stuff like here are some extreme weather conditions and what they'll do to you. But it's good to see what the normal weather conditions are going to do. The last part of Mastering the Wild is Wilderness Traps. This is really just a list of traps that are specifically crafted from natural effects. So there's a list of traps 
There's a list of terrains that you can make this kind of trap, the DC and effects of them. Um, they're cheaper, they, they're cheaper and easier to make than normal traps. So you got stuff like your, your breakaway vine, you know, it, it snaps off and hits somebody. You got your pit filled with sticks, which I think was actually already a thing. You got like snares that grab people's ankles and pull them up for a tree. It's just a very short set of rules for crafting them, DCs for how to make them, spotting them, things like that. Really just a list of traps. Finally, I could do my Vietnam War campaign. There, there was a gunslinger archetype I didn't mention called the Commando, which is stealth oriented. <laughs> Well, let's move on to the next chapter, Companions and Familiars. This takes up about 40 pages. The first thing we're going to see here, and one of the most amazing things, is magic item slots. Caleb, of course, I already know about magic item slots. Yeah, but what magic item slots does an ostrich have? Answer me that. (laughs) Well, now you can. Now you can find out exactly what they have. There's little lists here of the slots every type of creature will have. For example, avian, biped with claws, biped with hands, quadruped with hooves, quadruped with short legs, serpentine, unusual like plants and vermin. Perfect. So it fits everything. If it doesn't fit in the category, it'll fit in unusual This is fantastic. Is it needed? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Is it really (laughs) nice? Yes. (laughs) I can finally answer the question. Can I put a ring on my fox? Let me look up the rules. Yes. Oh, you can? Is that confirmed? Uh, Let me me look it up. Quadruped with short legs, available slots, armor, eyes, head, headband, neck, shoulders. No, I'm sorry. (gasps) My heart's broken. They also list here what animal companions would be in this slot, which is great. I don't think that list will ever be increased they're not gonna be like add these two to the piskine list Piskine, what's that angler fish oh fish (laughs) just call it fish please um (laughs) they get a belt and a chest slot and eyes great so like for the for that list (laughs) for that list it lists angler fish armor fish shark blah 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 all the ones that are fish in the future i think you can easily make that decision i don't need you to tell me it's on the piskine list if a new one is a eel, I get it. I know where it goes. He's got bomber goggles on your angler fish, and he's got a belt with rocket thrusters. Oh, I love it. The next thing we're going to see is archetypes for animal companions and familiars. Ah, uh, freaking amazing. Thank you. Why haven't we had these before? Archetypes are brilliant. Now, finally, they can give in to our little animal buddies. They have. They, they have had some archetypes. It's not a lot. The archetypes for the companions are really, really great because they they reflect their name very well. For example, the aberrant archetype makes your animal companion, gives it all the sort of themes and abilities that an aberration would have. The death touched, it's going to make it like an undead one. The fey touched, going to make it like a fey. The verdant, going to make it like a plant. They're a simple reflection of the theme. They work just like an archetype. They replace some of the class features. They do it smoothly, quickly, efficiently. I love it. It's something I really like for them because there's a lot of animal abilities, like, say, share spells that, you know, if I'm not playing a spellcaster, if I'm mm-hmm. a ranger that replaced my spells with something, never going to use that. Well, now I have a nice option to replace share spells with something I might actually use. I mean, who doesn't want a draconic animal companion? I ask you. <laughs> oh, this goat's amazing. He breathes acid. <laughs> and he's immune to sleep effects. And this goat was a fainting goat. Now he don't fall around no more. There's also a cool one called Augmented, which is sort of like sort of half construct. I love constructs. As you probably tell from many of our episodes of Trailblazers and even Pathfinder Academy, I'm sure. Really great reflections. 
like we talk about one archetypes we just went through a ton of them and we were like this one's kind of we're not going to cover this one because it's dumb i don't like it i don't think it does it well it's good that the archetypes they list here if they're going to introduce archetypes introduce good ones and they do the familiar archetypes there's some interesting ones before we talk about familiar archetypes we get we're talking about replacing the abilities of familiars we have to ask is it replacing improved evasion and if so, with what? Because a big thing about Animal Companions is that they are going, if your GM is playing by the rules, they technically get caught in AoE attacks, but they have improved evasion to deal with that. So no matter what, they will take half damage from AoE, and if they succeed at the reflex save, it means they take no damage, which is really important for the little, you know, thing that has half the wizard's HP that's always on them. <laughs> so that, that you always ask yourself that. And some do, some don't, it looks like. Like the one I want to talk about, the Figment, that one does replace Imprudent Invasion. Figment, you're familiar, is born from your imagination, not from the natural world. You have an imaginary friend, and he's <laughs> sort of real now because you're amazing. I'm a wizard, my dreams become real. This is my new cat. There's the mascot one, which is, you've all had that time with your little animal buddy became the mascot of your party. Oh man, this pig, you should have seen that one time he like saved the party. It was amazing. <laughs> now you have an archetype to make him the mascot. A great, the prankster one, that's it. My little weasel, he likes replacing everybody's coins with little, little crab apples. Little, little guy. <laughs> I love the mauler. The mauler is just an animal companion that says, I don't want spells. I don't want one of your empathy nonsense. I just want to hit things. It's a big buff animal companion that punches people and gets DR. And I think it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. I'm glad they gave different archetypes for the companion for the familiar because they do serve two different functions. But aside from that, aside from the new sort of rules, you do get new companions. There's 52 new companions, 32 animal, 12 vermin, and 8 plant. There is the grizzly bear, which... A lot of people were excited about because it becomes a large bear. Was this not a thing we had before? I remember a lot of people going, finally, a large bear. I guess the other bear companion didn't get large. I don't know. Internet, you know. I don't remember. I know the wolf got large. I don't remember the bear did. I, I No, I think the bear actually started small and got medium. Oh. Which, when I think of, like, when I think of, like, black bears, like, they actually are not that large. Well, this is the grizzly. It's called yeah. grizzly bear. Uh, you can get a falcon. We've had eagles before, but why not a falcon? People usually have falcons, not eagles. You don't call them eaglers. They're called falconers. Thanks to the book My Side of the Mountain when I was young, I wanted to become a falconer. Didn't do it. My mom got me like all like the different materials I needed to become it. And I'm like, I have to build an enclosure. Okay, I'm done. There's the gulper plant. Again, welcome Jumanji. The hunting cactus. Finally, Cactuar from Final Fantasy. Thank you. I'm ready. My body is ready. <laughs> A giant caterpillar, long as it will share its hookah, it can be in my party. The mosquito giant, please get out of my nightmares. You know, I'm going to hop right over to the strongest ones. And when you're looking at the animal companions, you got to ask yourself, hmm, which ones have pounce? Well, guess what? Some of them do have pounce and they're really powerful. The newest in the large cat category is the saber tooth cat. It not only has pounce, it has the grab ability. That thing's scary. Watch out for this thing I can't pronounce. It's called the Solfagid. Solfagid. It is uh, known as the Sun Spider. It has both the pounce and the rake ability, meaning if it hits, it can hit you multiple times on a charge, and it deals bonus damage if it hits you multiple times in a turn. So get ready for some cheese builds involving that thing. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on about how cute the other animals are. I mean, there's capybaras. They're adorable. <laughs> I mean, there's llamas. You can name the Cusco. And you can just have a hammerhead <laughs> shark now. I saw that in the notes. I'm like, Cusco. Couscous? I hate Cusco. No, Cusco. But when you said it, now I get it. All right, great. 
<laughs> I, mean, I can go on. There's a lot. Of, you know what a buster did? It's a cute little bird that lives in the desert. I, I don't have to stop. Hammerhead shark. You give it the death touched archetype, and now you got that thing from the newest and best Pirates movie. I think we can all agree. Dead Men Tales No Tales, obviously the best and not iterative. <laughs> but wait, 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 wait. If you give the hammerhead shark the undead template, does it have to breathe? Does it have to breathe? Does it have to breathe? Undead don't breathe. Fish don't breathe either, bro. They breathe water. It's not what called you, breathing. What is, what is it called? I don't know, but they got killed. They they got dr- drowning? Are they always it's drowning? It's called filtering. <laughs> no, they breathe. They're getting oxygen on. out of the water. <laughs> Let's move on from our, our beautiful hammerheads to the familiars. We're going to get 46 new familiars. New plants, new vermins, new animals, and you're going to get nine variants. What's a variant? You can have you can go from a fox to, oh, it's a snow fox. Oh, uh, there's a <laughs> bunch of them that usually just put the word snow in front, but there's a bunch of different ones. Uh, there's the Arctic Turn, which I hope very much is a reference to whose line is it anyway, which what noise does an Arctic Turn make, Christian? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I guess, uh, turn? <laughs> an arctic turn? And what sound does an arctic turn make? Bust it, boys! <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to link that episode in the description. It's fantastic. An armadillo. Finally, we can bounce it. We can use it like as a volleyball, like in Road to El Dorado. A butterfly? Who doesn't want to have a butterfly familiar? How could we not have this before? The Margay cat? Margway? Margay? Uh, who hasn't wanted one of these cats in real life? It's like the, the cats are like tiny little panthers and they're amazing. Uh, the chicken? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're a wizard, but you start out as a farmer. There's the creeper ivy, which you, I kind of like, I, like the idea of like my companions like wrapped around my wrist and up my arm and sort of up my upper chest. But they have this like wonderful little lore about it where that... It'll get mad at you if you give it shade. It's like, hey, what are you doing? And it'll, like, it'll like squeeze you. Be like, come on. The sun, where is it? The dwarf came in, which is our super cute little croc boy, as Christian would say. Look at this little, little guy. He's got art for him. Do you see him, Christian? Well, page 195. Look at this little, this little alligator boy. He's got such big eyes. Oh, I love him. The ion ward. Word? Word? W-Y-R-D. W's and Y's shouldn't go next to each other. This thing is just an ion stone. It's like, yo, I talk. Or, yo, I'm intelligent. The lamprey eel. Finally, my little mermaid build is complete. I could be the Sassalia from the Bestiary 1. Pick the hunter. Pick the archetype that lets me have two companions. Get two lamprey eels. I've done it! <laughs> Puffer fish. I can just... There's got to be comedy with that. It's got to be there. Penguin and the puffins. Come on. Memes rejoice. We've got our puffin. A ravenous tumbleweed. Christian, it's a tumbleweed and it's your companion. Does it like roll into people and eat them? Christian, it doesn't matter what it does. It's alive. (laughs) Well, I care about what they do. No, I don't. These things are adorable. (laughs) I love the dodo, the dumb, flightless bird that's not actually stupid. It just had no natural predators. And now you can champion their cause and save the last dodo. (laughs) (laughs) They're cockroaches. But I don't under- they don't have any kind of indestructible feat to them or ability. They're just bugs that don't really do anything. I was kind of disappointed by that. I wanted some kind of meme potential of having an indestructible cockroach. Party gets TPK'd and only the cockroach survives. You can have a flowering lattice, which is just a little plant boy, and he gives you fruits. <laughs> and I want to specify when I say fruits, he gives you F-R-O-O-T-S. He doesn't give you fruits, he gives you fruits. <laughs> it's adorable. There's the cockapo, another dumb flightless bird. I don't know why I love flightless birds. They're hilarious. It, it 
it evolved and it climbs trees to eat fruit and it what? had wings. It this is real? Yeah, it's a real yeah. thing. Platypus, you know, they just have like a smorgasbord of abilities. It's like they got poison and they have electrolocation, which was really neat. Huh. There's a suture vine, which is another little sentient vine, but this one kind of likes blood. And what happens is that if you're suffering from a bleed effect, it can actually like latch onto the wound and sew it closed over time. Oh, that's cool. And of course, there's wallabies. And this book also introduced Diggory Doos and Vegemite, so you can have your Australian Outback campaign. Wallaby? <laughs> a didgeridoo? What about what if we find a wallaby playing a didgeridoo? I know we have a non-significant number of Australian listeners, so I'm sure we're offending someone here. Oh, well then, I'm glad they weren't around to see my last character. <laughs> my last, I do an accent for each of my player characters, and this one, he, he, was, he was an Australian crocodile. Take Who's that. Like- he was supposed to be Australian? He was something. That's for sure. <laughs> I thought that he was, was British. That that's listen, British and Australian. What what is an Australian but a British prisoner when we when we look at it objectively, really? So there's 31 new tricks. Uh some of the cool ones are cocoon. It's your Pokemon, you tell it harden. Harden. <laughs> Entertain. The weasel's juggling now, is entertaining everybody. There's get help and rescue. Finally, my lassie fantasy is fulfilled. There's hunt. I feel like that one should have been there forever. There's poses, scenery. I am, don't look at me. I'm just a statue. Uh-uh, I'm just a dog statue. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Oh, the ruse is up. Go, go, run, run. <laughs> There's milk venom. Yo, you're a snake. I want your venom. Don't you bite me. Hey, don't you bite me. There we go. Uh, mark territory. You're pretty much giving a trick to pee. Cool, thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a bat familiar, though, that's free spell components. <laughs> that's three <laughs> free fireball components. Great. <laughs> That was, I think, my least favorite thing I ever learned about Pathfinder was that fireballs were just a bunch of back guano. I'm so upset at myself for, for learning that. Uh, there's watch. Just these are all these all seem useful. I'm glad they're there, and I don't use tricks very often. I'm sort of been using them a little bit more now that I've learned more about them. If you use them, definitely a lot of good ones. If you don't take the watch trick, your animal just doesn't have eyes. It can't observe things. <laughs> no. Just don't even try. Don't even ask at the time. One I really liked is called Receive Spell, and it's something I never really thought of. Most animal companions or familiars don't have super high intelligence scores, so there's feasibly spells that they'd be too stupid to understand what was happening, and something they spell out is airwalk. Like, you, I gave, here, Weasel, I gave you the ability to walk on air. He's going to be like, I don't. I don't get it. Like, what do you want me to do with this? It's a trick that you can Meanwhile, use. Meanwhile, the eel's like, there might be a couple other spells you need to cast on me first. <laughs> but you can make the DC depend on the spell level, and then they can use those spells. I think you have to pick specific spells, though. Hmm, cool. There is 12 new feats. And let me tell you, as a guy who was building an animal companion build not so long ago, I was really upset that, like, I guess the feats I'm taking are improved initiative. And I don't have a high intelligence, so it's like toughness, I guess. There's really not any interesting picks, so I was very excited to see new feats. Unfortunately, they're just okay. The intercept blow chain eventually gives you, not your companion, but you know the person who owns the companion, evasion. Cool for you. Again, I was looking for my animal companion, though. There's share feature that will get your companion or familiar certain class features from you. Uh, question, you were saying the list wasn't so great, though. It's stuff like bravery. Ooh, glad my companion's not going to fail. Fear saves. Trackless step. Ooh, another favorite. Uh, there's one that's head and shoulders over the rest, though. And it's- all right, Christian, I'm going to have to put a kibosh on all continued trackless step bashing. <laughs> I think our listeners get it. 
Okay, fine. But the, the one that's head and shoulders above the rest is hide in plain sight. Giving your companion hide in plain sight, if you have it, would be really cool. Mm-hmm. One of the ones that I saw was Feral Grace. It basically gives them dex to damage on their attacks, but it's at a one-fourth hit dice scaling, so not good. But hey, you can't complain. It's free damage for your animal companion or familiar, which probably isn't going to do much damage anyway. And there's a nice picture here of the gang hanging out and just relaxing with some wild animals moving around. The person's like feeding a little animal. That's cute. It's a nice little picture. Hey, Jacob, you want to play some D&D tonight? I can't. Uh, I have to go make love to my wife tonight. Oh, well, um, uh, next time I'll... Uh... You know, I don't even know if I love her anymore. I don't really know her. Like, what am I going to do? Someone should tell Jacob that people change, and it takes effort to stay connected with someone. But in the meantime, the fellows at Tales from the Lich always stay connected through gaming and friendship. When you can't play, listen. TalesFromTheLich.com Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day. Well, now we're into Chapter 6, Christian, The Spells. This is 15 pages of spells, 49 new spells, 5 new rituals. Let's take a look at some of them. The spells, they're either wilderness-based, plant-based, animal companion-based. That's sort of the three categories. Some kind of reach out of the categories, but that's just about what the categories are. One I wanted to talk about is called Green Sight. You can see through thick plant matter. Just like, sort of like, you know, you can see through fog, whatever it's called, not fog sight. There's some spell lets you see, see through fog. Well, now you can see through like dense forests and stuff. That's a creative one. There's Sea of Dust, which is a level nine druid spell where you pretty much, you make all the water recede. Guess what? It's super low tide now. The ocean was just drained and it's permanent. This is, congratulations, it's done. And it, there's, there's like all sorts of rules about how now the terrain's going to wither away, all this bad stuff. I guess if you want to be a druid casting nine level spells, that's a powerful thing to do. The rivers, they're gone. This whole forest is dead in two years. There's new shape spells, which are always interesting. Fae form one through four. Ooze form one through three, which lets you pick specific oozes. And there's some very powerful oozes in Beastury five, I think it is, maybe six. Like one of like the blood of an elder god's an ooze. The Shagoth from Beastury one's an ooze. Magical beast shape. And Shape Changer's Gift, and a greater version of that, allows you to use sort of chain shape spells on your allies. Usually they're personal spells. And there is Snowball, and the only reason I'm pointing out Snowball is because I heard no end of people complaining that it was nerfed. It is a second printing of a spell, which Paizo has pretty much said, you take the most recent printings, and it nerfs Snowball into Oblivion. Snowball never did a lot of damage, but it like staggered you or something. They got rid of that and even made it like spell resistance can break it, which... A lot of spells that are in its category don't do that, but this one doesn't now. Evocation spells, I think, usually don't worry about spell resistance, but this one does. There's a spell that caught my eye. It's called Pouncing Fury, and the idea is that you just cast a spell on yourself, and you can make a pounce attack afterward. And I was like, wow, what a neat way to balance pounce. Like, I have to spend a whole turn doing it. I have to be a spellcaster, so probably not the best melee artist, but no. Marshals aren't allowed to have nice things. You can't have pounce. It's not good. You can only use it to make claw attacks. You can never gain additional attacks. It can only ever be two, even if you have, like, other natural weapons. And it specifies that, like, if you have any abilities that grant damage bonuses, you don't 
get it on the iterative attacks. So there you go. That's the nature of <laughs> marshals. They can't attack things and deal damage, even if they waste a full turn to do so. One of the cooler spells, I think, is Echo. It's kind of in the bounds of minor image, major image, where it's entirely up to the spellcaster and their imagination of how useful the spell can be. All you do is you hear a noise, you cast Echo, it will repeat that noise at varying levels of volume of your choosing, which I can see no end of creativity of how to make that spell work for you. Definitely. Your party gets ambushed and like the, the or someone gets ambushed. There's like a break in, there's a bank robbery and there's a big bang and you cast echo and the, like the, the robbers come in and there's another big bang. And they're like, oh, wait, are the cops already here? What happened? And there's another big bang. And they're like, wait, I'm really confused. Did we get the bombs wrong? Like someone help. Other spell I really liked was just sturdy tree fort. It's just a spell and you make a tree house <laughs> and a little sign that says no girls allowed. That's not in the spell. There's some new rituals, some of the interesting ones. Uh, you can form a blight. A blight is a special kind of ooze that was introduced in most recent Bestiary, Bestiary 6. There's sort of like nefarious oozes that are smart, I believe. There is return to dormancy where you do something like, I don't know, like the like King Kong part. You need part of bringing him back to calm him down as perform this ritual and he'll go back into the forest until he awakens again. Great thing to use into like Godzilla and all the kaiju, I bet. But that brings us to our last chapter, gear and magic items. I'm always so excited to see magic items and see a li- Oh, it's only 10 pages. Let's find out if they use those 10 pages well. So the gear is mostly, the mundane gear is mostly like wilderness and camping gear. Now, I know when I say camping gear, you're thinking, okay, that's cool, tent, this kind of stuff, we need this in the game. No, you don't understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about camping modern era gear. There's tents hunter stands stretch cords what's a stretch cord christian you're gonna do what to me (laughs) it is literally a bungee cord it's a elastic piece of rope with two hooks on the end hmm fishing lures and waders yes there is more than one item for fishing (laughs) and my personal favorite a cooler chest and insulated flask so you can make sure that that beer stays cool all night long my hillbilly role play mechanics are complete (laughs) i'm ready i I like how when i first get in this chapter the first thing i'm assaulted with is like five different backpacks (laughs) (laughs) you want this backpack we got another backpack this one's got water in it there's randomly a wind-up music box i didn't want to mention it because it's like it wasn't important enough to pick it out of the list i only mention it because it's like really weird i think it was somebody's pet item like I, I finally can finally put up a, a music box into the game i'm allowed to add something to this book i'm excited there's a waste pouch how is that not a thing already and there's literally no mechanical benefits to it but all right great there is it's like a belt pouch i think it's called i was just looking at that i was like why is this here there's a belt pouch is this any different christian it can be adjusted to any facing along its wearer's waist well good thing the rules spelled that out <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have known what to do with it. Christian, there is a goblin lure for five gold. It's a it's a hook with a goblin head image on it. And guess what, Christian? There's freaking like a paragraph of rules for this dumb goblin fishing crap. I can't wait for the profession fishing rules because then we can finally make use of some of the stuff. Otherwise, the plus one I get from my wading boots or whatever on my perfect my circumstance bonus my profession fisher check thanks a lot paizo but we also get after that some alchemical tools and adhesive strip 
Okay, so we're getting kind of like Velcro. Great, we got we got um ion tape or electric tape, something like that, from the technology guy to get our duct tape. Well, now we got some adhesive strip. Great pheromones, which are there's like four different ones, which is kind of cool. I like the idea of having the pheromones in the game uh, in a wilderness campaign, being able to like make animals behave certain ways via pheromones. Red flame torch, which essentially is a torch that doesn't burn as bright. There's liniment, which is like a therapeutic oil. It's lotion made of herbs and oils. You rub it on yourself and allows you to ignore ability damage, some ability damage caused by a disease that you're suffering from. So a nice option if you can't afford something like an anti-plague to get rid of the disease, at least you can buy some liniment and keep yourself from suffering too much from it. That's like a useful item. Definitely. It's it's definitely a story-based item, I feel, because the cure for a disease is like 50 gold. This is only 15 gold, so you could... Definitely just right there in the rules, make a story about someone stringing people along, only giving them enough money to assist with the disease, but Ooh, not cure interesting. it. Interesting. Um, there are new enchantments for shield. There's Jawbreaker, which lets you make an attack of opportunity with your shield when you're being bitten by a bite attack. And you can even have like damaging the opponent's jaw. There's ambushing. We can put on ranged weapons. It links you better at hiding and doing a hit and shot when sniping. There's plummeting on ranged weapons, which will force flying creatures out of the air. You have to like make checks and stuff every time you hit them. I really, really like uh, enchantments like plummeting because it allows you to put an item in the game that says like, you know, this is a legendary weapon that took down some great flying beast. It's just like a normal weapon with the plummeting enchantment on it. So they can take that weapon out and use it against a flying creature, and it fits very thematically. I love ones like that. Also helps with those pesky dragon encounters that are tough. It's like my players don't really have much to do against flying. They have some secondary backup weapons that are ranged. They're not very powerful, but if they have plummeting, you can maybe bring it to the ground and finally use your weapons and stuff that are better for it. There's some wondrous items. There's the Belt of Spirit Vines, which allows you to pretty much share spells with your allies that are usually say personal if you're a druid ranger or shaman or witch there's root sense boots which when you give a a command word ghostly roots grow from the boots and into the ground and you get tremor sense for 30 feet that's kind of cool yeah tremor sense is really powerful uh there's the bestial rags which this is another item you'll see in books that have new classes it it basically gives the shifter new options one of the things that we kind of ragged on the shifter about (laughs) rags is that they didn't get a lot of animal focuses well this 8000 gold body slot item basically just gives them a whole new uh aspect that they can choose from whatever one is imbued in the rags and it also gives them some additional time that they could spend in their uh focus per day kind of a must have item if you are a shifter mm-hmm. and then lastly we have magic plants it's a new brand new type of magic item you're essentially transferring the effect of a spell into a plant and thus duplicating it, having like a replenishable supply of it. There's a bunch of rules for how you plant them, how you make them, even how to replant them, and how they only yield certain period of the year. But when they do yield, they yield usable like material, like the fruit or the seeds or the leaves. You take that and you get some sort of benefit. So for example, the goodberry bush, which I think this book has loved to use the goodberry spell a thousand times, grows goodberries for a certain time of the year. You have an infinite amount of good berries, essentially. A replenishable amount, I should say. There's not many of them. They're kind of like categories. There's grabbing vines and helping hands vines. These are both sort of things you lay in the territory that will help you, like, climb or, like, grab people. Uh, 
untangle them on the ground. There's the acidic lemon tree and the fire apple tree. One explodes and does acid damage. One does fire damage. There's the fishweed and restful birch, which are sort of like, you know, general helpful tools. The fishweed, which allows you to survive without air. Restful birch allows you to sleep for less time. Or lets you get the benefit of sleep by sleeping less. Interesting idea. I hope they get more of them. The number, they, they, the ones they have here, it's a very small list. We need more to really make them interesting. But it's. A, I like the idea of having a magical plant. I, I really like that idea because a lot of campaigns I end up running, PCs tend to have like a home base sort of deal going on. And a magical plant of their choice is a great item for them to have in their home base. Yep. And I might hand wave the season stuff because I don't have a ton of campaigns that go through like the seasons 10 times before the campaign's over so my stuff like only lasts like a year that sort of thing in game wise now while most of this book we've just gone over some highlights i almost covered every magic item there was only 10 pages there was not a lot here but christian let's talk about our conclusion of this book for me the shifter was a massive disappointment, but the races were great. The new shape-shifting spells are great. I don't play a lot of magic users, so I usually skip the magic parts of the book, but seeing all these different shape ones were exciting. I always love new rituals. Rituals are cool. I'm, st I'm still struggling to really implement them well. I keep experimenting, but I love the idea behind them. Plant magic items are interesting and unique, but I'm disappointed there isn't more gear. 10 pages of gear, really? And that kind of will lead me into how I feel about, I think... They didn't use the space for what they should have. A lot of space was given archetypes that I would have much rather been used on more items, on more nature rules. I felt like we only got tastings. That nature chapter was broken down into like six sections. Each of those could have been a chapter and expanded. I would have liked that. The Animal Companion and Familiar chapter was phenomenal. Not only getting new ones, but the magic item slots. They needed feats badly. At least we got some. The archetypes are really cool and they're good. The Wilderness chapters were pretty cool. I wish the trophies had a little more uses. I wish some of the stuff was a little more streamlined and not as complicated, but I get it. I haven't mentioned this so far because like when we cover our Beast Year episodes, it's just half an hour of Caleb going, I like the art. The art is cool. Ooh, look at this one on this audio podcast. So I, I held back. But the art is great in this book. Not every book is phenomenal. The art. There's a great picture here of a grave knight with a hellhound versus the hunter with her wolf companion. There's a lot of really sweet pictures or awesome pictures. Overall, for me, though, it's a hit and miss book. Some stuff is too needlessly complicated. See weather section. Some of the feats are nearly useless and it's poorly edited. I would like you guys to take this opportunity to enter with me into the errata zone. Dun -dun -dun. <laughs> They already published, like, immediately an official errata, which is like, oh, that Shifter's Edge feat we talked about? Uh, it's it's half as good. We made a mistake. Immediately, like, before the... <laughs> the PDFs had only been out. The book wasn't even out to the public yet. And they're like, hey, guys, mistake on the Shifter's Edge. <laughs> real quick, we're going to be errataing that real quick. But there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be added on the errata. Because this came out so close to Christmas, they didn't put out an official errata aside from that one because it was too egregious, I guess. But, like, the gath lane doesn't list its type. Well, I usually like to know the type of my player race. Vermin Shape 3, as reference, doesn't exist. It's part of an archetype, does not exist. I guess that is an archetype is good now? I don't know. Feet say what they do in the summary, but when you read the full description, won't say that. So unless you have the summary that is not in any sort of like official, like it isn't in the list when you look them even online or in Hero Lab or anything, it literally will do nothing. And like one of the archetypes, it replaces instead of alters weapon and armor proficiency, resulting in a martial class that has no weapon proficiency. 
It's one word that made all the difference in the world. The Gathlane has a spell that references 1d3 for small creatures. Usually means you're going to about to say, then it's X for medium creatures. Never does. Okay. Thanks for being specific. The shifter archetypes. Just listen to our extra credit episode. It's just like everywhere. Like, is that what this does? Did It didn't even replace this class feature. What? I don't understand. And just so much of it is unclear. I made the conscious decision for us to not mention it every time we came across it in the individual chapters and put it all to here so that we didn't just keep complaining the whole time. But it really is across this entire book. And then the problem with it is that it throws the things that might be intentional into questionable light. For instance, something I didn't mention, the leshy archetype that allows them to throw seeds instead of bombs there's a lot of verbiage that says, you know, it acts like bombs. For the most part, it, it's treated like a bomb for your intelligence. But at no point does it actually say that you can take alchemist discoveries that alter your bomb for your leshy seed bombs. Is that intended or is that another egregious mistake on their part? I honestly don't know. And I kind of have to wait until official word from them until I feel safe making a build for one. Yeah, a lot of stuff you're going to do run by your GM and like, I think this is what they meant. What do you think? And he's going to have to make the decision based off of no real evidence. I mean, I share a lot of the uh, same opinions as you, Caleb. I do wish there was more room for the nature themes. I think they did such an excellent job with things like discovery and exploration. I wanted that expanded. I wanted that to go over to more nature-themed things. Instead, we got a lot of archetypes, which, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love archetypes. It's one of my favorite parts of the game. Um, but when I get a book like this, what am I thinking of? I want to pick up this book and maybe have a small set of other material, the core rulebook, uh, GMing guide, and I want to be able to run a wilderness campaign. But so much of the content is toward, like, a lot of it is for, say, archetypes of the newest classes from the advanced class guide which you might not even be using yet. My, my opinion is definitely going to be colored by the fact that I don't really like the nature theme. So you take everything I say with a grain of salt. It's not something that I was super looking forward to in the first place. But there's just so many options. Like, there's only two reasons I would ever pick something for a character, whether it's a feat or it's an archetype, so on and so forth. Either because it's powerful or because it's flavorful. I can think of no other axis of which I would base a decision to pick something, and there's so many in this book that are absolutely neither. They're not powerful, and they're not flavorful. So why mm-hmm. would I ever pick it? I'm gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna take a quick little side note to read the ability of the Roadkeeper Druid archetype at level Ready. two. Ready? Oh, let me sit down. Let me hot cocoa. Okay, okay, I'm get good. on Let's the go. edge of your seat. Hold on to your hats. <laughs> you bought the whole seat, but you're only gonna need the edge, <laughs> the shifter's edge. Oh wait, it got nerfed. <laughs> <laughs> no. At level two, the druid can take the high road. A roadkeeper travels over roads and paths at an accelerated rate. She and her allies can hustle for two hours without taking non-lethal damage, instead of one, provided they travel along a road or path. Additionally, as long as they travel on a road or path, the roadkeeper and her allies count as traveling along a highway, regardless of the quality of the road or path on which they travel. Allies must remain within 30 feet of the Roadkeeper to benefit from this ability. This replaces Woodland Stride. Wow, my fantasy come to life. <laughs> we can walk on roads. I'm ready. <laughs> like, uh, like, I don't know. I just don't understand why anyone would take the time to write that out. I'm never going to pick this 
archetype because of that ability, and I'm probably never going to use it. Am I using yeah. the marching rules all of a sudden? Uh, it, 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 it is. It, when you said it, Caleb, it, it really is just a mixture. It's really hit or miss. Some of the stuff here is excellent. Mm-hmm. And I wish some of those excellent sections had more pages. I do think overall it is a very good comprehensive nature-themed book. If you want to run a nature-themed campaign, you definitely want to pick this book up. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of rules that I think you can and will be using for it. But I think that it could have been a lot better if they used the space better. I feel like like some of the, the, the nature rules and the core rule book, but mostly ultimate campaign, are going to do a lot of what this already did. And the stuff it expands on is just like so little. Oh, new weather rules, but it's only three pages and it's needlessly complicated. And, and then there's awesome stuff when you find out like about the first world, but it's only two pages. Like, give me more. Give me more. Oh, look at these cool new magic items. There's only 10 pages. There's not enough room for it. They didn't do that all the time. There was enough room for the archetypes. Thank you. Like you said, hit or miss. Some of the archetypes were crap. I'm repeating myself, so I guess that means it's the time to end the episode. For me, discovery and exploration is the gold nugget of this book. I'm definitely going to be using it soon. I'll let you know how that goes. I'm very excited to make territories and have my players explore an area where, you know, when you're in a city, you have an idea of where to go. There's, like, these constraints that don't exist in the wilderness, so it becomes, like choice overload well it's the woods we can really go anywhere there's really no way of saying which way to go and i think those rules really cure that and i'm super excited to use them and i think if you have an animal companion that that chapter in the book is really really good that might be my favorite chapter even as good as the archetypes are well christian i've got two questions for you one would you recommend it and would it be for players or gms and two is it worth the price you can get it for 45 dollars on paizo's site ten dollars for just the pdf and on Amazon, you can get it for 35 bucks. Hmm. If you're running something that is nature-themed, if you're going to be exploring nature, if you're going to be using the nature classes, I would definitely recommend it. Despite its missteps, I do think it is very competent in buffing and fleshing out the options for that kind of campaign. It is definitely catered toward the player. Uh, as a GM, there wasn't a lot for me to read that I would do. It's definitely more catered to the player. Which raises the option, the question, well, there's a lot more players than GMs, which one should the books cater toward? I don't give a crap about that question. I don't write the books. I don't decide what books come out. Let Paizo figure that out. Right. <laughs> I'll take what I what they give me. Is it worth the price? Um, $10 for the PDF, 100%. I think so. $45 for the hardcover. Since there's going to be so much errata, I, I almost want to say no, because <laughs> the book's going to be misleading you for $45 half the time. Yeah, I think Paizo's policy is that they don't even change PDFs when they do errata. The only time they'll change the PDF is when they do a new printing of a book. I'm going to say I actually want to recommend this for both players and GMs. If, again, you're into the nature theme, if, especially if you have any sort of animal companion, there's more than just the section of animal companions. There's different parts that you can use with them, even like the feats we're talking about. Normal feats were for some animal companions. The archetypes were for those classes that have animal companions. There's a lot of options here for the player. The whole first chapter is about heroes and a new class for players. The spells are for you. The feats are for you. The gear and the magic items for you. For the GM, the really only solid GM part is the chapter four. I say solid because what I mean is anything a player can use, a GM can use for an NPC. So it's essentially every piece of material is for both players and GMs. We understand there's some things that it's mostly for players. I would consider archetypes mostly for players. 
That's what I mean by solid. Uh, so really only chapter four is for the GM specifically. And it's only 50 pages. Given that those 50 pages are hit and miss, I could not possibly recommend this for the GM past buying just the PDF. For players, I would say buy the PDF, maybe even buy the book on Amazon if you want to do nature. But just you recognize you're going in with a hit and miss. Not all of it is great. But the stuff that is good is good. I I honestly, I, I would, oh, so many of my complaints would disappear if they just did a second editing pass. And said, and just rebalance a little bit on how much they concentrate on what chapter. That would just, it would improve the book so much. So it's a, I would say a mediocre book. All right, Christian. Well, there we go. Our second book review. And our first one that wasn't just a list of monsters. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see the person that runs the campaign without the Core World book with just Beast Jerry 1 and Ultimate Wilderness with just the books we reviewed. That would be an interesting, <laughs> that'd be interesting comment. <laughs> The next book we're going to be reviewing is Beast Jerry 2 because I love the Beast Jerrys and F whatever the listeners actually need. You want the Corval book? Too bad. I like Beast Jerrys. We're doing Beast Jerry 2. Take that. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great RPG podcasts, visit our website, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at TBlazerNetwork. This is Johan Martins. Thanks for listening.